Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. with you today, the third part of the series that we're doing called To the Nations, To the Nations, because we believe God has a heart for us as a church, and it's not for us to stay in this building. It's great for us to gather together and meet, but God has got a plan for us to go out and draw some lines on the map. We've been talking about that map that you find at the back of your Bible where God called uh, Saul, who became Paul, and, and, and in his obedience and following of the Holy Spirit and his being spirit-led, living a spirit-led life, he managed to draw some lines on the map of time across the face of, the his- of history. And, and we get to lead lives like that. We get to live in that way, and we get to go out to the nations and make a difference. A few months ago, earlier this year, my wife and I spent some time, uh, we got the opportunity to minister in Europe, and, uh, and we took that opportunity. We love just history and art and architecture and all those kinds of things, so we got the opportunity to go and visit some of those sites out in Europe and to see some of those really, really impressive churches and cathedrals and basilicas that you have out there, uh, which are these massive structures that are absolutely filled with incredible art and, and, and architectural design that's just mind-blowing and, and incredible feats of craftsmanship and engineering. It really is something to behold. If you've never uh, been to one of those churches, I pray that one day you'll be able to go and, and, and witness some of, the, of what has been done um, through just the ingenuity and a desire to honor God Um, You know, one of the churches that we visited had an organ that was bigger than some of the office blocks in Santon City. Just just the organ itself is like a five-minute walk just to get around it, you know, Um, with incredible vaults and underground areas and and, and secret libraries and, and places where art is kept and even tombs of previous leaders buried beneath the churches. Uh, if I pass away one day, please don't bury me beneath the floor here. Um, that would be weird. But, but you know, just the, the, it's endless in terms of the spaces that they've created. Uh, they have these, these massive vaulted ceilings and spires and, and, and sculptures that have been created, uh, walkways on top of the roof. And uh, Lee and I were able to go and walk on top of those, some of those roofs and survey the surrounding areas from the roof of the church. And it really is, when you stand there, you're just absolutely dwarfed by the size of those cathedrals and the the impressive nature of those buildings. But as I stood there and as I looked at these buildings, I still had this feeling that all of these structures and all of these buildings and all of this impressive art is but a shadow of the true church of God. I stood in front of a church realizing that my small body, miniature in comparison to the greatness of this incredible cathedral, is actually the true temple of God, is a greater temple of God. What I realized as I looked at those structures is that they They completely pale in comparison to the actual church of God. 
No matter how impressive they may seem, no matter how many decades they took to complete, they fail in one key area, and that is that they cannot contain the Spirit of God nor determine the boundaries of God's people. He does not live in houses built by man. God's Spirit cannot be contained in that place. In Acts 7, Stephen made a speech about the Spirit of God to those who really believed that God's Spirit would forever be contained in the temple in Israel. And he got up and he made a speech that was so upsetting to the hearers that they eventually stoned him as a result. So, you know, that's how you know you've preached the Word when it gets you killed. And he gets up, and this is what he says in Acts 7, 47. He says, it was Solomon who built a house for him, the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by man, made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things. God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. And that is why it is so important for us this morning to understand that the house of God is not a building. It's not a place, but it is a people. It is a community. It is a community of called out ones, which is really the original meaning of the word church, is the ones that have been called out in the wilderness, that, are, that, have been come, that have come together, that have been redeemed by God, that have been given an eternal plan and a purpose for their lives and things to pursue in the name of the Lord. The, those that proclaim, those that cry out, those that witness to who God is, that's what the church is. And every single one of us is a part of it. That's why I've got a few pet peeves around church and church culture. And sometimes it's when people say, oh, welcome to the house of the Lord. Well, you you were in the house of God this morning. And it's true in one sense and very false in another. It's false in the sense that this is not the house of God. This is a warehouse in River Sands. Right next door is a place selling gym equipment. It's not, God doesn't live in River Sands. I think even if he had a choice, he wouldn't live in River Sands. <laughs> Although you never know. God doesn't live in, in buildings. So it's, it's incorrect to say you've come to the house of the Lord this morning because you've come to a building. But it is true in the sense that as a community, when we gather, we are the house of the Lord. And so, yes, welcome to the house of the Lord. Another way we could say that is welcome to the family of God. Welcome to the people of God. Welcome to the ones that are called out by God. You are a part of this place. You're a living stone in this place. We are living stones that come together to form God's house and to form a dwelling place for His Spirit. How beautiful is that? That God's presence can be felt in the midst of a community that is committed to Him. That people from the outside can walk in and can experience the presence of God as they come in. It reminds me of a time when I was younger and I was, I was, I, I used to, we had a long passage in our, in our house and I used to run up and down that passage all of the time. In fact, I'd practice my bowling 
any sport that was the sport of that season. I would do my run up from the lounge. I would run through past the entrance hall, past the kitchen, past the, you know, the dining room, towards the bedrooms where the carpets were, and I would then bowl into my parents' room. That's, so if you came to my house any time, I was always running, running up and down the passages. And at one point, I remember running past the entrance hall. As I was running past the entrance hall, a man was standing at the front door that I didn't know. All of a sudden, there was a guy at the front door and he, walked, he took one step in and just looked bewildered. And so obviously I kept running, but ran straight to my dad and said, there's a guy at the door. And my dad went in and, and he was actually a salesman that was coming to sell vacuum cleaners. Back in the day, that was still a thing that you could do. And, um, you know, go door to door. And, and so he was coming to sell vacuum cleaners. And as he stepped in, he just looked up and looked around and looked completely confused. And when, he came, when my dad came around the corner, I was following on behind my dad. He said, there's just something different in this house. It's like I can feel God in this place. I'll never forget, my dad took him into the, into the dining room, closed the door, and began to witness to him. That man gave his life to Jesus because he walked through a door. Came back a few nights after that again. I don't know if we ever bought the vacuum cleaner, but, but <laughs> he got more than what he came for. He came looking for commission and instead found Christ and the Great Commission. He got, in a, he got a call in a moment because he stepped through a door where God's Spirit was. And that's the opportunity that we offer our world. That when they come into our community, when they see our love, when they see the way we care for each other, when they step into a time of worship or a time of, of, of the sharing of the gospel and we're together in that place, as they come in, they go, there's something different here. It's not a manufactured thing. It's not a thing we can build. It's not dependent on how great our cafe is or how good the, the stage looks or, or what the info counter looks like. It's not determined upon brick and mortar. It's determined by the people of God. You can walk into any one of those buildings in, in Europe, those grand cathedrals, and sometimes you go, there's just one thing missing. And, it, and I'm not saying that this is always true, but the one thing that sometimes is missing is actually God. It's actually God. Because it's so full of tradition and ritual and, 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 and all those things that it's become man-made. Jesus said you make the command of God to no effect by teaching the commandments of man as the word of God. That's not what God has for us. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.5 it says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. So we are stones in this place. We are rocks in this place. We are built together as God shapes us and designs us and molds us and builds us together into a house that can house His presence where people can encounter and experience Him. Peter goes on in verse 9 to say, You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We belong to God. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've been redeemed for a purpose. You were chosen by God. 
And the plan of God for your life and for our lives together is that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and brought us into His marvelous light. Talk about living a big life. That's greater than anything else that we could think about doing on this earth. But as we speak about this grand call and this, this great salvation, so many of us often look to ourselves and, and, and think about ourselves and go, I, I know myself and that's not me. I'm not the kind of person who's going to proclaim the excellencies of anything. Except maybe the last series I watched or a movie I enjoyed. I don't, I'm not the proclaim excellencies kind of guy, kind of person. And we think about ourselves, if we think about ourselves as living stones, some people say, I'm definitely not, you know, if you go to those cathedrals or you go to Jerusalem, they use these massive white limestone blocks to build those cathedrals. And, and, and if you saw one of those just solid, just dependable, just stable, just completely clean and, and whitewashed limestone, you look at that and you go, that's not me. My life doesn't look that clean. My life doesn't look that good. I, I'm not that dependable or that, that stable. I'm more like one of those dirty rocks that you find in Joburg when you dig too deep. Have you ever been digging in the garden? And it's like sand, sand and things mixed together. It's just a jagged old rock that you find buried somewhere. You're like, I'm more like one of those. Surely those grand white spaces are are, are, are reserved for pastors and preachers and, and, and those that are in the ministry, those that are better at serving Jesus than I am. So I want to take you to Nehemiah 4, because Nehemiah 4 involves a time when God called Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem after it had been ruined, after it had been destroyed, after the walls had been broken down, it had been sacked and destroyed. The temple was torn down and the walls were lying in ruins and it's very much a picture of our efforts when we try to be good enough for God. Some of you have tried to build a house. Some of you had tried to build a memorial or, a, or just something that recognizes God's goodness in your life and, and you failed. And you felt like all of your efforts just ended up on the rubble heap. And it's, and it's reflected on you in a way that you think, I'm not the kind of person who can, who can build this. No matter how hard you try to build, the problem was always that there was an enemy inside the gates. There was a spy that was committing sabotage on the inside, and that's, that, that spy, that enemy, was sin. It was all the desires that we don't know how to overcome in our own strength. And when we try, we fail. When we try to keep God's law and be good, we fail. And it leaves us feeling broken. It wrecks our efforts to be anything but broken. But God had a plan. And this is, this is a f what is foreshadowed through Nehemiah. So in Nehemiah 4, it shows us that, uh, that he starts to build. And, and as he starts to build, the kings of the surrounding nations are troubled and actually angered by the fact that the Jews would return from Babylon and think that they could come and rebuild these broken walls. That, that was a city that was conquered and they wanted to see it stay conquered. They didn't want to see a power rise up in the midst of them. So it tells us in verse one there of Nehemiah four that when Sanballat heard that, the, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their war. 
Will they offer sacrifices? Will they worship God again? Will they finish in a day? Listen to this. Can they bring the stones back to life? It's interesting that, that they, he would say that because stones don't generally live, do they? But God has the ability to, to bring stones back to life. He even says that if, if people won't worship me here in, in, in Jerusalem, I'll make the stones cry out. The very rocks will cry out. I'll raise up believers. This is what God was saying. I'll raise up believers from a people that were not my people. They've become my people. Don't discount what I can do. Don't underestimate what I can do. Because if this group will not worship me, I will raise up worshipers from across the rocks of the earth. Wherever stones are found, I will have worshipers. And they will call out to me. Do you know who those rocks are that cry out? It's you and I. We did it this morning. Will God bring stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? They were burnt stones. Nehemiah starts rebuilding the wall. He takes no notice of this. He prays and he gets going. And he starts rebuilding the wall with burnt stones. He uses those broken, burnt stones, and, 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 and this, these efforts seem so feeble. The onlookers at one point begin mocking them by saying, you know, even if a little fox had to climb up the wall, the wall would fall over. How many times do we do something for God and we feel like, man, that is so feeble? We don't really have foxes in South Africa, you know, maybe a jackal. If a jackal climbed up on our efforts, it would crumble. It's so feeble, but not when God is the one building the wall, not when God is the one putting it together. The enemy would have you believe that your efforts are feeble, that they are, are fickle, that they are fragile, that your building is shaking at best, that what you're doing for God doesn't really matter. But sooner or, or later, you begin to realize that God is actually doing the building through you. That the mortar and the cement that holds those stones together is not of this world, but that we are bound together and fashioned together and solidified by the Spirit of God in our midst. He becomes our cement. The Bible talks about the fact that we as believers have the bond of perfection. The bond of perfection, better than any super glue or contact adhesive or anything, any cement that you could use, we have the bond that cannot be broken. And you know what that bond is? The love of God. It binds us together. It binds us together as a spiritual house so that no matter how burnt these stones are, God is able to build for himself a dwelling um, in, in our midst. We're not built around our own strength. We're actually being built. And the Bible tells us that we're being built around something. He is the foundation and he is the chief cornerstone. In Ephesians 2, 20 to 22, it says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, being the pillar, being the rock, being the one around which we are built in whom the whole structure, the whole church being joined together grows 
into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God for God by the Spirit. Jesus is the chief cornerstone and we're being built around his life and on the foundation of, of the finished work of the cross to form the house of God. Uh, what, what I'm trying to express this morning is that there is a massive effort of grace. Grace builds the house. And it takes us as feeble, fickle, broken, cracked, burnt as we are. And it says, I've chosen you to be a part of this house. But I'm burnt, God, but I've chosen you. And I will put my spirit in you. In the Old Testament, Solomon built the temple. And he built it according to God's instructions. And, 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 and again, this was a foreshadowing of what the church truly would be what we truly are today. But this foreshadowing came with certain instructions and, 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 and I wanna begin with what God's desire was. What was God's desire? God's desire was to be present in the midst of the nations. He wanted there to be a witness and a testimony of, his, of who he is to every nation. And so he acts powerfully on behalf of a small, obscure, insignificant nation out in the Middle East that really had nothing going for them. But God says, I will make you a great nation and I will show myself strong on your behalf so that all the world may know that I truly am God. God chose Israel to reveal his glory. And that's why God chose this small nation in the, in, the, in, the midst, in the middle of nowhere. It's why he chooses us, us as a peculiar people. So often he chooses the, the things that the world would not choose, that they would discard. Because that's how he reveals his glory. So that no one would look at us as a bunch of, of misfits, burnt stones, broken People, we've all made mistakes. And God goes, I know, that's exactly the plan. This is how I'm going to reveal the manifold, manifold wisdom of God and the, and the glory of the gospel to show, look at what I can do with the people that were nothing without me. I will cause them to be known throughout the nations. And no matter what government or system or program or philosophy or, 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 or whatever comes against them, they will not be overcome. For millennia, they've predicted the end of the church. Right from the very beginning, they predicted that the church would only last for a short time before it would be completely overcome. Only to find that the more the church is oppressed, the more it flourishes. The more that we are, are hard-pressed, the more the glory of God is revealed through us. We cannot be overcome. You're a part of something so, so incredible. It's a privilege be a part of God's house, to be a part of his church. God wanted to dwell with his people. But in the Old Testament, the problem was is that people, Jesus had not yet died for the sins of people. And so, and so we were still in our sins. Humanity was in sin and God could not dwell with sinners. It would be death for us to enter the presence of a holy God while being unrighteous. He needed to create a way 
for Israel to be able to approach his presence or to be able to even make atonement once a year. And so he created the temple and restrained his manifest presence to just one room, the most holy place in that temple. And the Ark of the Covenant that was put there became like his, like his throne on earth. But this was not an approachable place. It was not a place that you could come near to. You couldn't just waltz in there. You could not boldly approach the throne because sin had robbed us of our boldness. And rightfully so. Our confidence was wrecked. How could I as a sinner stand before God? That was the position that humanity was in. How could we even worship God if we can't approach Him? But God had a plan. And His plan was to reunite sinners with His presence. To reunite sinners with His presence. And He did this by sending His own Son in the flesh. Not only to come and dwell among us, God is now with us but to offer himself up as a sacrifice so that all those who stood far off, all those that were removed, all those that were distant from him could now through grace and the finished work of the cross be brought near. You don't have to stand here today wondering, do I have the right to worship God? Jesus has done everything for you to be able to stand in the presence of God. That's why our church is called Anchor Church. It's from the book of Hebrews where it talks about Jesus is now our anchor that holds beyond the veil in the most holy place. Jesus has anchored us in God's presence. Ephesians 2, 12 to 14 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's brought us close to him. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That which separated us from God has been broken down. And we've been made one with God and with each other. So by nailing our guilt to the cross, Jesus reclaimed the stones. He brought the stones back to life. This is what happened when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross as he declared it's finished and died on the cross for us. Matthew 27, 50 to 51, it says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Come on, God had an impact in the lives of every person when Jesus died on the cross, that most holy place that housed God's presence in order to protect people from the holy presence of God, there was a thick curtain that hung in front of the most holy place. That curtain was, was blue on the one end, symbolizing heaven, and 
red on the other end, symbolizing earth and humanity. And in the middle, they blended together to become purple, which symbolizes the person of Jesus, who was perfectly man and perfectly God. In the hypostatic union, he was, he was 100% man, 100% God, and therefore the perfect representative that could represent both God to man and man to God. And he stood in the gap for every single one of us. And in the moment that his flesh was crucified on the cross, the curtain was torn as an act from God, not from the bottom up, not from human effort, not because somebody went and tore it, but because God said, I will make a way for all people to come into my presence. And it's the presence of God. It's through the person of Jesus that God's presence can now be felt on the earth We don't have to hide from him. We don't have to run away from him. We can boldly approach him because in Christ, we who were not righteous have been made righteous. And therefore, we have regained our confidence to come before God. He was the perfect blend and the perfect way. Hebrews 10, 19 to 20 says, therefore, we have what? Come on, let's say it out. We have? We have confidence. Why do we have confidence? What is the confidence for? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So that curtain is Jesus. And now, because of Jesus, we have confidence to go before God That became the door through which we not only enter God's presence, but God's presence enters us. You see, it didn't just keep God's presence. The curtain, it wasn't just about keeping God's presence on that side, but but, but now the the presence of God gets to to come out of that temple. It's why the temple's no longer there. It's why the temple's here. It's why Jesus sent the disciples out and he said, wherever you go, I want you to tell the people the kingdom of God has come near you. God's presence enters us. We are not merely visitors to the temple like Lee and I were in Europe. No, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You are a temple of God's Holy Spirit. We're temples of God's Holy Spirit individually, but also corporately as we come together We form the house of God. So let's ask the question again, why did God dwell with Israel in this way? Why did he choose the small, obscure, insignificant tribe of people living in the Middle East and make a covenant with them? Why would he make a covenant with us? 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world To shame the strong. He builds his house with burnt stones. So that he is the one that would get the glory. God doesn't want people to walk around the the house of God and go, man, look at those stones. Those are incredible stones, man. They are so beautiful. Which is really what you do when you go to those cathedrals. You look at those pillars and you look at the marble and you look at the gold. And you're like, that's not God's intention. You know what God wants people to do? He wants, us, he wants the world to be able to look at this house and go, man, who is the builder? 
who is the architect? Who is the person who put that together? Because those stones are really nothing. You would think that you couldn't build anything with those stones. But look at what a master craftsman has done with that heap of rubble. He's built himself a glorious house. He's the one who gets the glory. And that is why God revealed himself through Israel and through his church so that the nations would know that surely God is their builder. Second Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure, this glory, this gospel, this spirit of God in jars of clay, in earthen vessels. Have you ever seen a jar of clay? It's just that those earthen pots, there's really nothing spectacular about them. They're often cracked and broken. But inside of them, they are absolutely filled with treasure. And it's the treasure of the gospel. Why did God do this? Listen, he tells us, to show. He chose earthen vessels to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're not powerful in this world because we have a great organization, because we have great corporate structures, because we have you know, good financial systems. Uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not powerful in this world because we've ascended through some sort of a corporate hierarchy. No, we're powerful in this world because we are chosen by God and filled with His Spirit. Because we are the ones who carry the mystery of the gospel, a plan that was hidden uh, for ages that has now been revealed through us. Hey, God can choose anyone, build them into the house, and use them for His glory. And that's what He wants to reveal. God wants to show the magnitude of His power and grace to the nations and make it undeniable that He is real. So that we can shine the light of His glory. Why? Because God's desire is still for the nations. It's still for the peoples. It's still for the tribes. It's still for the tongues. It's still for the communities. It's still for the cities that all people would come to see and know his glory. Jesus gave the commission, a very simple commission, a commission that all of us have received. He said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them who Believe in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those are the lines that we get to draw on the map. We get to be those witnesses. We get to share the gospel. We get to, we get to touch nations and see peoples and communities and places encounter the living God. We get to do it through our church. We've been brought near so that we can bring near. When we encourage you to bring people to church, it's not just because we want to have a room full of people. It's because we want you to engage with the great commission of God for your life. So that we can continue building something that will stand in heaven. Something eternal that we can do with our lives. We've been built together so that we can build together. We've been put together so that we can do something incredible together. And that's the adventure of our lives. What a privilege. What a privilege that we know our meaning. We know our purpose. We get to build something eternally. I saw a video of Elon Musk this week. You know, he's, he's in the news at the moment, just bought Twitter. A lot of people are freaking out. It's fun to watch. But I saw a video where they recorded him where he said when he was 16 years old, he was obsessed with meaning. 
He wanted to know what his meaning was and, his, and what, his, what the meaning of life was and what his purpose was. And he went through all the religious texts. And trying to find meaning in them, he obviously missed a few things and he didn't feel like he felt anything in them. Just religion. I can tell you now, there's very little meaning or life in religion. He went to philosophy from there and read a lot of philosophers. He said he, he read a few German philosophies in that, at that time and it, it scared him. Um, and he didn't find meaning in, in that. He's become the, he's a South African, he's become the richest man in the world and he's built incredible companies. But I can't help to think that he is still building and keeps building because he's still searching. It's never enough, is it? You could be the richest man in the world. You could have a hundred children. I think he's somewhere around there at the moment. You could, you could travel to Mars. You could literally exit this atmosphere in the search for meaning. But if God doesn't build the house, those who build, build in vain. How much do we build? Because we are seeking after meaning. Yet the answer is sitting plainly in front of us. Let's build God's house. I saw a, a sign at the entrance of an art exhibition this week. It was posted in front of an art exhibition. I saw it online um, in Barcelona. And it said this. It said, we want the world to be so enlightened that peace and unity are inevitable. You know, statements like that, man, I have this theory of three questions deep. I would love to sit in front of the person who wrote that and ask them a few questions. What do you mean by enlightened? Who does that include? How would you go about that? You see, the world is always trying to build the kingdom of man, the kingdom of humanity. You'll see when there's an Olympic Games or something of the sort, they'll always talk about the spirit of humanity. We're always trying to convince ourselves that at a point, we're going to stop all the wars. At a point, we're going to stop fighting with one another. At a point, we're going to become so enlightened. It's really a new age philosophy. We're going to become so enlightened that, that all of a sudden, we'll enter the age of Aquarius and we'll just live in peace with one another. How's that going? How is that going? Spend five minutes on any social media platform and tell me how that's going. I thought to myself, do you know how different people are? Do you know how different people are? Do you know how many different views there are and cultures? You know, this exhibition was in Barcelona. I wondered, are you including the Somalis in that? How about the indigenous people of the Amazon basin? Or the Mongolians? Or the Pacific Islanders? Is everybody going to just, I mean, trying to get two cultures to work together is difficult. You're telling me you want all of them? to be in complete peace because they're so enlightened? There was a time when all the cultures of the world was one. And at that time, the only thing that happened was the amplification of human pride. It moved them further away from God. 
At that time, they decided to build a tower and try and reveal how majestic they were, make a name for themselves. I want to read this little passage as I close today. Genesis 11, 1 to 8. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Humanity, the flesh. Let's take bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, building the kingdom of man. Lest we dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people. This is the power of unity. And they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth and they left off building the city. Why did God do that? Well, God did not want people united as they were around the kingdom of man. Why? He had more for them. He wanted them to be a part of building not a temporal kingdom, but an eternal kingdom. And so he divides them. And then he sends his son. And then he redeems them. And then he reunites them. Now we get to come together, not like at the Tower of Babel to build our own kingdoms, but we get to come together in unity to build the kingdom of God. John 17, 21, Jesus prays that into being. He says, I pray that they may all be one. This is the same God who divided. He's now uniting. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity is the privilege of the church. It's the heritage, it's the inheritance of God's people. Nowhere else on earth can cultures and tribes and tongues and, and, and different backgrounds and different socioeconomic groups and different peoples from all over come together and be of one heart and one mind like we can. That's who we are, church. We refuse to play the identity politics game. We refuse to identify ourselves by race, by creed, by color, by language. Our identity is that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. What a beautiful thing. We come together not to build the kingdom of this world. It's, it's, the, it's the temptation of Satan. He takes Jesus up on the hill and he says, and he says, Look at everything. Look at everything that you can see here. All these nations. I will give them to you. I will give you the kingdoms of this earth. That's the temptation to us. But Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? No, it was God who said in Psalm 2 verse 8, 
He said, ask of me and I will give you, I will make the nations your heritage, your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. God is the one who redeems people from every nation and we are the ones who bring the nations in. We are the ones who reach those souls. We are the ones who build a house that will witness to the glory of God. And that is what we're asking God. Spirit, lead us. What, is, what do we want the Spirit to lead us into? We want the Holy Spirit to lead us into supernatural unity as a church. A godly vision, a vision from God and the opportunity to, in our lifetimes, be witnesses to the nations. That's what we're asking God to do in our lives. That's what the map is there for. That's why we have a heart for the house.